Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's London correspondent in Westminster. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor, normally in Dublin but currently at home in my kitchen in Kildare. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and in Dublin. It's an intensification of talks, but don't call it a tunnel. Ahead of the resumption of face-to-face negotiations on the future relationship on Monday, we'll assess what the new negotiating format will mean and what results it might deliver. And we'll look in a bit more detail at the four big stumbling blocks, level playing field, fisheries, police and judicial cooperation, and the governance issues, or how to solve disputes in the future. And while it's not immediately related to Brexit, we'll assess Pascal Donoghue's chances of becoming the next president of the Eurogroup, the body that brings together the Eurozone's finance minister. But first, next week's talks. How different will the structure be? And what was wrong with the old structure? Tony, to you first. Yes, Colm. So next week, the uh, both sides will meet face-to-face for the first time since early March. Uh, Sean was there when that last happened in Brussels. And it comes following a hiatus in the future relationship negotiations. As you know, we had four rounds of negotiations. Uh, They pretty much got nowhere. And that's partly, I suppose, due to the effects of the pandemic, which collided with the negotiations and it prevented people meeting in the same room. They had to do everything by video conference, as as you know. Uh, And then there was a high level conference, which was effectively Boris Johnson meeting the leaders of the three main EU institutions, again, by video conference, they were taking stock of how the progress had been so far, not much progress, really, uh, and figuring out where to go from here. And it was a fairly sober and uh, not an entirely optimistic uh, period of time there between when the last rounds of negotiations finish and when this new format will begin. But I think there are some grounds for optimism and certainly this is going to be a new approach to the negotiations. So what was happening until now, of course, was by video conference, there might be 100 people on the UK side, all either at home or in their offices on, on a screen and 100 people on the EU side, depending on which portfolio the officials were working nice. on. But now they've broken it down into smaller groups. So on Monday, they're going to be, there's going to be uh, just short of two dozen uh, British officials will come over by train from London physically, face to face, real humans meeting real humans in the Berlimont, the European Commission's headquarters here in Brussels. And they will try to chip away at the uh, difficult, outstanding obstacles. And the way this has been described is that it's it's they're going to provide um, much more political oversight to these negotiations. In other words, there'll be much more uh, a much stronger presence of the two main negotiators, Michel Barnier for the EU side and David Frost on the UK side, so that both teams of officials, again, a smaller group on each side, will be able to try and test the, the margins of manoeuvrability. Uh, and to do that, of course, you need political cover. So both chief negotiators are going to be much more hands-on. They will be able to figure out fairly quickly if something is worth pursuing or if it's a dead end. Uh, and the way it's been described to me is that next week will be almost like a pilot um, th- because this is a new format and they want to see how it works 
And if there is a positive mood at the end of the week, then the feeling is that things could start to move a bit more over the, the next four weeks after that. Right. When uh, you say move a bit more, the end of, are, are you talking about something that's a, a little bit more tonally? Well, no, it's not going to be tonally because the, the, the normal procedures of the EU uh, informing both member states and the European Parliament at each turn, that's, that's still going to apply. Right. Uh, and we're not really going to have a tunnel situation until September or October. Uh, that seems to be uh, fairly uh, much the orthodoxy around Brussels at the moment. The German presidency, as we discussed last week, wants to focus on the EU's seven-year budget and the big coronavirus recovery fund. But if things go well yeah, next week and the mood is positive, then with that extra political impetus and the the more direct involvement of the two main negotiators who, who will have political cover to explore ideas, we may start to get a bit of progress in the negotiations. But again, I don't foresee any great um, denouement until uh, September, October. Right. Uh, Sean, what has the tone been like in, in the UK? Because to go to one end of the media spectrum, at least from searches of the media, whilst doing my homework for this podcast, the Daily Express, at least, has been framing it as that David Frost has told the EU to get real and it needs a reality check. Yeah, I mean, there's always a bit of this. And even in Mr. Frost's own uh, Twitter feed, where he's uh, announcing the timetable for next week, uh, and the intention of these talks for subsequent weeks, it all tends to be fine until the very last minute where he, he can't resist having a little dig and saying the EU have to uh, get real and come off some of all the All right, here, just give me a second. We go. My son rings the doorbell, wakes up the baby and pays the penalty by having to babysit in the meantime. So, Sean, as you were saying, the chief negotiator, David Frost, setting the scene, at least according to his point of view, on Twitter and elsewhere. Yes, I mean, he, he tweets out... Uh, what's coming up in the talks next week. And most of it's fine. It's all uh, process and what's going to more or less happen. But then at the end, uh, he seems to be unable to resist the urge to uh, try and chip away at the EU a bit and saying, of course, it all depends on the EU backing off some of the more extreme positions. And that's the type of thing that uh, the Daily Express then takes and whips up into a fine big confection of uh, confrontation but i don't think the mood is, is necessarily confrontational here let's face it everybody is far more uh, interested in dealing with the uh, covid 19 crisis um, both the health crisis and much more coming to the fore now the economic crisis that results from it and indeed the the there's a covid impact on these talks because even with the new structure and the face-to-face -face meetings and the back and forth uh, to uh, between London and Brussels uh, by the negotiating teams. And, and Tony was right. Yeah, I was there for that one and only face-to-face -face or over in Brussels. We had six Eurostar trains a day uh, between London and Brussels. Uh, now the timetable, uh, and certainly for July, as far as we can tell, is going to be one Eurostar train a day. So when uh, David Frost and his team go to Brussels, they'll have to be keeping an eye out on when the uh, Eurostars go. It's around lunchtime from Brussels back to London uh, and when uh, Barnier and his team are here in London they'll have to be watching out because they've got an earlier start there's only a nine o'clock train back to Brussels and they will be faced with dilemmas about do they stay on for an extra day to uh, try and finish up talks on a face-to-face -face basis or do they just take that early morning train back to Brussels and then try and finish it out 
on a video conference. So literally the, the talks are going to be impacted by railway timetables and the timetables themselves are being dictated by the management of the COVID-19 crisis. Tony, when David Frost goes back to Brussels and has this face-to-face meeting, he's facing a Michel Barnier whose negotiating mandate has not been changed. The European Parliament has discussed Michel Barnier's mandate. The Council has also reaffirmed this mandate. So whatever budging that's been sought on the part of the UK for the European Union to do, it doesn't look, it doesn't look like it's coming down the tracks to continue Sean's railway plan. <laughs> That's true. Well, it depends on which gauge of railway tracks you're talking about. But uh, yeah, that's that's true. Um, th- there is no appetite at the moment for the EU to change the mandate that they gave Michel Barnier. And that was made clear during the high level conference meeting between Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel and so on. Uh, and Boris Johnson seemed to have accepted that the, the EU is not going to relax its mandate at the moment. Michel Barnier has said on numerous occasions that the mandate is sufficiently flexible for the EU to compromise when it feels compromise is necessary. But overall, I think all sides on the EU uh, side of things at least believe it's just not the time to to compromise in a big way at the moment. They would rather do that in September, October, when we do get into a tunnel situation. They just don't think the time is right for the EU to shift uh, on its positions. But we are, I mean, there is quite a bit of um, shifting sand at the moment on the big area of contention, which is the level playing field and state aid. And we, we touched on this a bit last week. Sean mentioned the, the Spectator article and this idea that both sides would agree loosely to uh, some kind of regime of a level playing field. But if the UK decided to diverge from that uh, understanding, they would do so in the knowledge that they would be hit by tariffs for the relevant sector. So if they go into a particular sector of the British economy and bail out a number of companies, then they're happy enough to pay the price of higher tariffs. Um, now, I think it's interesting to dwell yeah, but where on where does that go to? I mean, who decides whether or not they have, in fact, breached the rules to the point that tariffs kick in? Well, that would be uh, some kind of uh, arbitration panel or dispute mechanism, uh, dispute resolution process. But I think the important thing here is that this idea has got out there and is circulating. And you were talking about David Frost's Twitter thread uh, on Thursday, Sean, uh, the final tweet that he put out in that thread was, uh, finally, I want to be clear that the government will not agree to ideas like the one currently circulating, circulating, giving the EU a right to retaliate with tariffs if we choose to make laws suiting our interests. Now, he's he's framing that in a slightly uh, negative towards the EU way, but uh, this certainly was not an EU idea. And the people I speak to in Brussels don't believe that the UK is really interested in this because, you know, this could lead to, uh, you know, rolling uh, disputes over what the UK is doing when, if it if it bails out a particular industry or sector or company. And you could get into an escalating tariff war between the EU and UK. And this does not really suit the, the UK because it wants to promote this image of being uh, global Britain, the champion of free trade, 
how can it do that if it's perpetually in a scrap with the right. EU over the level playing field well, uh, stadium well, issue? Well, on, on that, can I go to Sean on that, Sean? Because the US Chamber of Commerce has urged the UK to reset its relations with the EU before conducting bilateral deals, and it reminded that there's $750 billion invested by US firms for access to the EU. So th- th- there's concerns there. The IMF has predicted a drop in the UK economy of 10% over the course of this. We see the increasing weakening of sterling and even warnings in the last few days about the impact of the US election on sterling and concerns about Brexit around there. So there is another pressure. There's a pressure on global Britain, isn't there, Sean, to at least do a coherent deal as far as potential trading partners are concerned. Yes, yes, there is. And and just to round out on that last point that Tony was making about Frost and that tweet, which I was going to draw your attention to, I'm glad you did, because uh, you're right. And in fact, the very last line of it is, we couldn't leave ourselves open to such unforeseeable economic risk. And that's a really important thing to bear in mind in any of these negotiations. Well, if exactly the question you were posing, who decides if tariffs are going to apply, if Britain changes a law, makes some kind of a divergence, uh, who decides whether tariffs are going to apply? Does that mean Britain and, uh, as Tony said, Britain and Europe getting into a constant argy-bargy over whether this law or that law or, or the other regulation diverge in some way and that that would therefore trigger some kind of a tariff process being applied. Uh, yeah, that's crazy kind of stuff. You, the whole point of having uh, an economic agreement uh, between traders is that you have legal certainty there so that people, the economic actors, the business people, uh, everybody who moves the goods around the place, they know what's going on and they can plan uh, and commit finances and other resources with a high level of certainty. It's that economic certainty of having things written down and and legally clarified that is the really important thing in any kind of a trading agreement. And and I think Mr. Frost is quite right to, to say you can't introduce an ambiguity like that, even though it's the type of thing that sounds great if you're kicking ideas around over a glass of wine later at night. When you look at the practicalities of it, it doesn't really wash. As for the other uh, international dimensions to it, yeah, you're right to uh, draw attention uh, to the Americans uh, who do seem to be pushing back uh, a bit more on the idea that uh, Brexit is a great thing and you don't need all these euros. You're right. The amount of money that's invested in the European market uh, by American companies is gigantic. The trade flows across the Atlantic aren't particularly big. The real juice in that North Atlantic relationship is the investments that are made by the Americans in Europe and by the Europeans in America. And the amount of money that's generated by those investments uh, is colossal uh, and is far more important really than than physically moving goods uh, between uh, the two blocks. It's quite small. But the impact of Britain, the longer this goes on, uh, it's not good. We had a report from Bank of America during the week saying that sterling is now starting to resemble an emerging markets currency uh, because it is shrinking. uh, It's becoming more volatile. uh, It's becoming prone to political events uh, like the Brexit situation. We've had the Japanese government Uh, The uh, UK and Japan uh, have started uh, talks on a uh, trade agreement between the two of them, a free trade agreement that would at the very least replicate the terms of the EU-Japan free trade agreement by which Britain currently benefits with a free trade deal with the Japanese. They need to try and replicate that, but the British are uh, seeking more out of it, uh, uh, particularly getting some access for British services and British agriculture. But the Japanese this week 
uh, told them in no uncertain times, we want to finish this negotiation by the end of July so we can pass it through our parliament so everything's in place for the 1st of January, which means you have to have very limited expectations of what you, the British, uh, might be able to achieve in a very limited time frame. And then we had the comments, which I think we mentioned last week, from uh, Robert Lighthizer, the head of uh, the US trade negotiations, and uh, saying that you know the British relationship with the EU uh, is much more economically important than the British relationship with the US, and that's the one that the British ought to be uh, devoting their attention to in right, the short yeah, which, term. Which and echoes that those comments by out. the U- US Chamber of Commerce as well, which I suppose, Tony, is an opportune point to, as we flagged at the beginning, look at the stumbling blocks. If time is limited, let's have a look. I hear my dog whimpering here in the background, maybe in sympathy with the disastrous scenario. Sean has just mapped out He there. knows what's coming <laughs> up does. now, Colm, and I, I'm almost <laughs> whimpering <laughs> myself. Uh, well, we, or maybe it was the thought we were going to get back to the stumbling blocks. Either way, I think we could all offer at least a metaphorical whimper here. What's the state of play with them? Well, yeah, I mean, the, uh, as we mentioned, the big one, again, uh, level playing field. And within that, you include uh, state aids. Now, just briefly on the level playing field, you know, what the EU wants is for both sides to commit to not lowering their standards on uh, labour relations, on social Uh, protection on the environment on taxation on climate change not lowering lowering them below the point they are at when britain leaves the transition so in other words when britain leaves the transition at the end of this year the standards that it has are the ones that they have generated through membership of the eu so the idea is that they would both uh, promise um that, is that a bang or that, a whimper? That, no, that's a child crying. The, the pessimism is growing in this house. Go on. So, so that's one thing where, where both sides would, you know, uh, commit to, to not lowering their standards below that threshold. And whatever way you, you parcel that up, it's something that the UK might be able to live with because they have said that they don't want to lower their standards. They don't want it to be a race to the bottom, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the really difficult one is state aid because it's one thing to say you're not going to lower your standards. It's another thing to say you're going to effectively prevent a, con- a sovereign country from bailing out uh, a sector that you know might be relevant for votes for any for a particular community for uh, a particular industry. You know, for the UK to be bound up in the EU's state aid regime and machinery is really something that the UK uh, is resisting very strongly, but. It's very fundamental for the EU because state aid going forward is going to be a major issue. You can see how the pandemic has forced governments to suddenly change gear, uh, bail out companies that have been hit by the pandemic. Uh, And essentially, the EU is saying, look, we need to have a set of principles that we can both sign up to. And once you have those principles, then you codify that those principles into a rule book that both sides can follow and that both sides understand. Um, now, for the EU, what they're saying is, look, we have this rule book uh, at the moment for 27 member states. The European Commission can decide that uh, such and such a government cannot intervene and prop up uh, a particular ailing company or in- industrial sector, uh, and the, the member state has to abide by those rules. But the thing is, it's clear 
and everybody abides by the rules and there are penalties if you don't abide by the rules. Is it that clear so though? Because I mean, saying, the, the, the rules have largely been dropped for the duration of the COVID crisis. So, you know, and things like freedom of movement have been restricted as well. So there are an awful lot of things that were absolutely non-negotiable when Brexit started, that COVID has shown when it comes to the crunch, there is room for, for compromise on these areas. Well, the thing about state aid and the pandemic is that the, the treaty provides for exceptional circumstances for for economic shocks where you do have to suspend the rules because of some major event. And we've had that major event with the pandemic and the European Commission was perfectly within its uh, rights to say, right, we're suspending the normal functioning of the state aid regime to allow governments to protect workers and protect companies in this you know, unprecedented emergency. Um, that's written in there. It wasn't kind of an ad hoc decision by the Commission. Uh, and if you had an agreement between the UK and the EU like that, then both sides would know, well, what happens if there's another pandemic uh, coming down the tracks? Um, at least we know what the rules are. And essentially, the EU is saying, look, we're offering you the exact same benefits and constraints that any other country in the EU has uh, you're invited in to take part in our single market. All we're asking is that you play by the rules that other countries have to play by. Uh, and that way, we have a clear set of understandings. We won't have a dispute every six months. Um, you know, we won't have the instability that that might bring about. Uh, but, of course, that means the EU is going to insist on the European Court of Justice having ultimate arbitration over the state aid, the state aid understanding uh, and of course that is still something that is a bridge too far for, for the for the UK Poli and another Sorry, one uh, of course is is the uh, fisheries uh, dispute um, between the two sides small part of the European economy small number of jobs involved but big passions uh, inflamed uh, by it on both sides or at least for the eight coastal states of the European Union I'm not sure whether the Austrians or Hungarians are getting terribly excited about fisheries uh, as long as the cod and, and prawns keep arriving for the top-end restaurants. Uh, I don't think they're terribly bothered, but uh, it is out there as an issue. As we know, uh, the European Union are, want a situation that basically replicates uh, the common fisheries policy now that, that you have a, a fixed uh, setup, whereas the British are saying there has to be annual negotiations about allowing uh, EU vessels access to British waters. That sounds like there might be grounds quotas. for a compromise, Sean, that at least well, you, know, really, you, I mean, you, you could come to some middle ground there. Yeah, Of course you could. To come Every to five years, ground. maybe. It's precisely. Or three years, or seven years, or whatever. Pick a number, have an argument, come out of the day, but, you know, between those two extremes, there is very much uh, a gaping uh, middle ground there, or an ocean-sized landing zone, uh, if you like, between the two of them. Uh, meanwhile, the clock uh, ticks on, and of course, all kinds of anomalies start uh, popping up. We are indebted to the Financial Times for telling us about the plight of the Loligo squid uh, and its role is that in the, the one that lives around of, the Falklands, is it? It is the very one that lives around the Falklands and is uh, very um, much eaten with relish uh, uh, throughout Southern Europe. What kind and, of relish? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> many kinds of relish, Tony. Tell us about Go, Southern gusto, Europe. Look, gusto and relish. Go on, anyway, yeah, Sean. The, the poor old Falkland Islanders send 90% of their squid exports to the European Union. Uh, goes through the Spanish port of Vigo. 
uh, not through the UK at all, but it's going to fall foul of any fisheries dispute between Britain and the European Union, uh, which means not good for the old squid munchers of Europe who are going to be down on the amount of squid coming in or possibly paying higher prices for it. Not great right. for the old Falklands fishermen. And yet another issue for them to argue about in the fisheries deal unless they try and get it sorted out. But okay. as we say, there is a, a, a landing zone in there. A looming calamari uh, calamity. Uh, another, Tony, another, um, another governance, sorry, another issue that we, we promised to talk about last well, week. Well, I was just going to say that there's which, policing and judicial issues and there's the extradition yeah. thing that we flagged last week. And I, I beg the listeners' pardon on that one because we said yeah, we'd get we to it and we didn't. Well, let's get drop. to it now yeah. then. Yeah. At the moment, of course, Britain is still uh, actively a member of the European Union and if you want to be, if you want to extradite somebody from one member state to another, what you have is the European arrest warrant. Obviously, a very controversial uh, piece of legislation in the UK, but it means that as extraditions can happen uh, quickly uh, and effectively, and they, they, it, there are various rights and safeguards baked into the European arrest warrant. But of course, Britain is leaving at the end of the year, which means it wants to have something to replace the European arrest warrant. And that is part of the that strand of the negotiations on police and judicial cooperation. Now, on, on one level, um, the big controversial issue is Britain accessing databases like the Prum database on, on fingerprints and uh, license numbers for cars. Uh, there are databases for DNA uh, samples for suspects. And essentially, the UK wants to still get access to these databases uh, but not be subject to the writ of the European Court of Justice. Of course, if you are accessing databases, then there has to be a corollary of uh, human rights protections for suspects or citizens who who have their fingerprints or whatever being handed over to a third country. So the EU is very uh, big on insisting that the European Court of Justice has some role in making sure that the UK doesn't abuse this data when they get it, that there are constraints on how much data they can get. Um, but the, the issue of extradition uh, suddenly blew up there uh, last week because the European Commission circulated a, a paper around member states saying that the UK wanted to limit the grounds on which a British citizen could be extradited to a, another European country or to an EU member state. Um, for example, they wanted to make sure that a, a judge, a British judge, was satisfied that this extradition request uh, was proportionate to the crime uh, or proportionate to the penalty that the, the person might receive at the end of it. Um, there were, they wanted grounds uh, including, you know, did this interfere with the British constitution? Um, you know, were there other grounds for limiting the uh, ability for the EU to extradite a, a British citizen to, uh, to say, Romania or Spain or Portugal or whatever. And this is going to be very important because um, Germany has a law saying you can't extradite anybody uh, to another country if it's not in the EU. So uh, just say that Britain wanted to extradite the man suspected of killing Madeleine McCann. You know, what would happen in that context um, if there isn't a harmonious and workable extradition arrangement between the UK and the EU. Um, now, the European Commission recommended in its the paper that it circulated to member states that these grounds for um, restricting an extradition request were unprecedented, that they wouldn't work, 
um, that there are sufficient safeguards within the European Convention on Human Rights, which the UK is still a signatory of, um, and that none of these uh, restrictions are found in EU EU arrangements with countries like Norway or Iceland. Um, so the overall message from the Commission to member states was uh, this is not acceptable, we're not going to give in to the UK on this uh, front and uh, as far as I'm aware member states have largely agreed with the European Commission's yeah. analysis on that. So, so uh, this is going to be another very, very tricky right. area. Well, we've also seen a tricky, these, these, a, a these tricky example of that. These negotiations are back over the same ground of 15, 16 years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, we had an example of the British uh, benefiting from this with Ronan Hughes being extradited from Ireland um, during the week and appearing the very next day uh, in court in Britain and being remanded in connection with the death of 39 immigrants from Vietnam were found in the back of a truck sure, uh, down we, in Essex. We, but we also October. have the rather peculiar scenario of a British citizen living in Ireland, Ian Bailey, who the state here deemed there wasn't uh, ev sufficient evidence against to mount a prosecution in the case of uh, the murder of Tos Sophie Tuscan de Plantier. The French are pursuing a prosecution against him in a court in Paris and have issued a European arrest warrant and are going to hold a trial because France reserves the right to prosecute for crimes against French citizens, even if it didn't happen on French territory. So you could see where in that, even a very practical example, issues are thrown up not only for Ireland, but post-Brexit, the UK look might look askance at it, the treatment of a UK citizen in that situation where in a common law jurisdiction, the burden of proof hasn't been deemed to be sufficient amount of prosecution. Yeah, and uh, that has long been a, an issue of this uh, difference between common law systems and uh, codified systems or uh, Napoleonic code style systems, uh, which obviously the French system would be that, the Irish system would be in the common law uh, tradition. And trying to integrate those things is difficult, but this is why uh, the role of the European Court of Justice and indeed the, the European Court of Human Rights, uh, separate organization, not the EU, obviously, but uh, allied to it, become important in this issue of people's uh, rights, people uh, being extradited between states. Uh, at least there is a third party court uh, that they can have some sort of access to uh, and try and get some kind of rulings out of uh, over the, the uh, process that's being applied to them. And of course, if Britain leaves uh, then the question becomes, again, a governance issue. Uh, where is that ultimate court of appeal uh, between the rights of, of citizens, uh, quite separate to the rights of uh, data, uh, which people would supply either willingly or inadvertently uh, to police systems? I mean, the British signed up at the last possible moment for supplying the EU or giving them access to uh, databases here in Britain of information about suspects. Um, to enable reciprocal flow of, of data that way. Uh, but if you are on that database, whether you are or whether you suspect you are, uh, what rights do you have as a citizen over the use of that data and the transport of that data outside of the European Union? Do you have access to any kind of a court that's not the British court, uh, any kind of a court that will be above uh, the, your own country or Britain as the receiving country, a third country? one that you can have recourse to. So as a European citizen, you might feel more comfortable knowing that there's a European right. court having oversight of this. If we're into some kind of an anomalous situation to deal with the British, that might be more difficult. And it does become much more of an issue for Irish people simply because of proximity and the old gravity theory, I guess, of criminality, not just trade. 
Speaking of difficult issues, and just in the last few minutes as we record this at around half past three uh, on Friday, we're getting indications that the Green Party reckon it'll be around 8pm before they complete their count on the programme for government. So the difficult issue of putting a government together in Ireland, we don't know yet who will occupy the various cabinet seats. But we did have a fair indication, Tony, at least who will be Minister for Finance in that Pascal Donoghue would hardly have put himself forward for the chair of the Eurogroup if he wasn't likely, if not definitely, going to be the next Minister for Finance. Yeah, Pascal Donoghue very quickly became uh, one of the three frontrunners to be the next President of the Eurogroup. Uh, the incumbent Mario Centeno of Portugal uh, is leaving and uh, the nominations to succeed him are closing on the uh, or rather the the vote to replace him is going to be on the 8th of July so those nominations uh, came in yesterday so Pascal Donoghue is one of three front runners Nadia Calvino who's the economy minister in Spain uh, and you also have the uh, Luxembourg finance minister who is Pierre Gramegna he's applying for the second time for the post but an interesting three-way contest there and although the Spanish candidate is the front runner and has the support of Germany. Uh, she is somewhat aligned with the southern Mediterranean club med countries who have been pushing for euro bonds and pushing for corona bonds and uh, a much bigger uh, recovery fund uh, that would be based more on grants than loans. So she's not uh, the huge favourite of the frugal north countries like um, the Netherlands, the Hanseatic League. So those are the countries that appear to be uh, more sympathetic to Pascal Donoghue's candidacy. And, uh, you know, I suppose he is putting himself forward as uh, a candidate from a former bailout programme country uh, that uh, took the pain, drank the poison and then uh, recovered thanks to the uh, European programme, as some would say it, and uh, that he's uh, walking living proof of the the merits of how the Eurozone tackles these kinds of crises. Um, he would also present himself, I think, as a bit of a bridge builder between the Hanseatic Northern Nordic League uh, and Southern countries because Ireland was a bailout country, but also because Ireland aligned itself with France and Spain and Italy and others in looking for a much bigger uh, recovery fund after the pandemic with some quasi-mutualisation of debt. Um, so he is somewhat interestingly placed among the three candidates. Uh, so it is possible that he might actually be the the candidate who is the compromise candidate after the other two are uh, perhaps knocked out. But of course, it did require him to be a sitting finance minister um, so that obviously has affected the formulation and formation of, of the new cabinet if, as you say, the Greens vote for this programme for government. Yeah, well, anyone who's not familiar with the Greens voting, they have to get 66% of their members have to vote in favour of the programme for government. Uh, the, in Fine Gael, it's, it's a bit easier. The Electoral College of their uh, parliamentarians carries the most weight in that party and Fianna Fáil, uh, whose result actually should be in between 6 and 7 p.m. is a simple 50% uh, as well. So the Greens being the tricky one, and I'd say their, their result not due in till 8 o'clock. And then if all of that happens, there'll be a vote for the Taoiseach at a special sitting tomorrow. Uh, so that'll be uh, an interesting a set of circumstances going on over the weekend. And then the programme for government obviously will be adopted 
subsequent to that. Actually, there is a fair bit on Brexit in the programme for government, but it's all pretty much what we've heard before. It identifies it as a risk. It talks about the land bridge maintaining relations with the EU, close trading relationships, but a need to diversify. It's very much a risk assessment in terms of the, uh, the programme for government there. Educational collaboration pops up as well, but maybe when the government is in place, uh, we might have a look at that in case there's any tweaks on the Brexit front if things have moved on. Yeah, next week is, as we were talking about at the start of the podcast, next week is a resumption of the negotiations, of course, this time as we've described, face-to-face negotiations in Brussels, uh, a different format um, with yeah more political interventions uh, more quickly, uh, smaller teams in the hope that they can start to dismantle some of these big uh, troublesome areas that we've discussed, uh, governance level playing field, fisheries and police and judicial cooperation. Um, And then those talks will kind of run right through until the end of July. Then there'll be a break uh, in August. Everything shuts down here in Brussels and then things will pick up again in September. What about you, Sean? Things shut down. Things shut down here in London in August as well. But you wouldn't think that listening to some of the pronouncements uh, from the British government, you think it's exclusively uh, something that the uh, windy continentals get up to uh, as an excuse to head off to the beach. Not the British people ever need an excuse to head off to the beach. As we saw not, this certainly week, not born with anyway. Yeah. Uh, not only uh, do we have those talks going on, but uh, here in Westminster, the Parliament is continuing. Uh, it's uh, very good, I have to say, uh, level of scrutiny of what's going on here. We've got the Lord's EU subcommittee has been looking at uh, the issue of services trade with the European Union. Uh, Again, something that's going to be uh, very uh, difficult for them, potentially. Uh, They're looking sector by sector at things like architects, uh, at uh, financial services. And indeed, we had a, a series of papers from the Treasury this week about the first inklings of divergence in regulation over finance in the financial sector. Uh, directives like MIFID and Solvency 2 means nothing to normal people, but they are very important for regulating financial firms in in, uh, banking, stockbroking uh, and insurance uh, markets. These are things that London is very big at. Uh, They want to uh, have the right to regulate themselves, but also be in conformity with EU regulations. Tricky, you bet it is. Um, That was published this week, but there'll be no doubt more being looked at next week. And also the Commons uh, Committee, they're returning to the issue of citizens' rights um, um, around Brexit, looking in the first instance at how British citizens are being treated in other European countries, notably France, Germany and Spain, uh, and then later in July looking at how Britain is treating EU citizens uh, living uh, here in the UK. Right, that all sounds fairly meaty. We should come back to some of those themes. Well, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungine, broadcasting, as you've heard, from my kitchen in Kildare with all the attendant sound effects. And me, Sean Whelan, uh, London correspondent, broadcasting sound effect free, I hope, from uh, Westminster. And equally serene conditions here in Brussels, it's Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor. Thanks for listening.